And the next weekend we, we, can I say celebrate Easter? It seems to me we shouldn't be celebrating somebody's death. But that's what it is. We're celebrating next weekend what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I wanted to start off this, this week by, uh, by just sharing something that um, I came across in the last few weeks and has really been working in my heart. And so we're going to look at two main scriptures in the Old Testament today. And so if you've got your Bibles, won't you um, open them to Genesis chapter 3. And, and then also I want you to keep a finger in Zechariah chapter 3. We're looking at chapter 3s today. I think you'll all agree with me that our beliefs as Christians are rooted, first of all, in Scripture. They're not only rooted in Scripture, but, but they resonate in our hearts. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, God has brought you to a place when you spend time in the Word and you, you read the Word and it, it just sits nicely in your heart. It resonates in your heart. And it's because each one of us has been created to worship and to serve God and to rule over God's created things. And we were created to do that in His name. And so when God formed us and he breathed his life into us it was actually an invitation to join a relationship that has eternally existed between the father the son and the holy spirit do you know that when we were when god breathed his spirit into us he invited us to participate that's what he did with adam and eve he said come and join us in the garden but they were, they were to join as sons and daughters of God. That was the most amazing thing that happened. And brothers and sisters, this has got end times implications for us. So I want you to hold that in your head because um, Emil started off by saying this is how the story ends. There, there's, there's end times implications. What God began on that day when he made man, he will finish. Amen. He will finish. And we're part of that finish. And so we can look forward to a full reconciliation and restoration of his original plan and his purpose. Why? Because God always completes the work he begins. Isn't that right? So let's have a look at Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading from verse 5. This is a story we all should know very well. And from verse 5. It says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we know this is after Eve um, has been tempted and the, the devil is speaking to her and encouraging her to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it goes on to say, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. 
so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So it's all her fault. Then the Lord said to the, God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Yeah. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we see Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and they are tempted through their own desire. Now, admittedly, they're, they're egged on, they're, they're enticed by the devil. But as the Apostle James says in, in James chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. All right. Now, what we have to remember is that at that stage, desire had not yet been conceived in man, in Adam. But it was there. It just hadn't been brought to life yet so the devil was very aware of this because it was the reason for his own fall from grace if you go through to 1 timothy 3 and verses 6 and 7 you will find that paul speaks about things like the condemnation or the snare of the devil the devil wanted to be like god and he was saying to adam and eve if you eat of this fruit you will know the difference between good and evil and you will be wise. You will be like God. And so that stirred up something in them. That desire that had been lying sleeping was stirred up. And desire comes with a package that God has given us called free will. And both the devil and man had free will. That's why the devil fell. That's why man fell. James goes on to say that in verse 15. He says, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So man's desire, like the devil's, was to be like God. He wants to be his own God, in effect. So can you see the process? Desire leads to sin, sin leads to death. But when we look at what happened in the garden, you know, I always think to myself, it seems a bit unfair, because neither Adam nor Eve knew what death was no one had ever died there so when even god said to them if you eat of the fruit you'll die i would have if i was adam i would have thought die what do you mean die death i have no idea what that means so it seems a bit unfair that that god didn't explain it to them what's going in going to happen but you see sin and death were foreign in the garden at that stage but the moment they ate the fruit they gained the knowledge of good and evil. And through that knowledge, it pointed them to sin. You see, if you know the difference between good and evil, then you know what sin is. And so that has been passed on. That knowledge was passed on to every generation of man ever since. In each one of us, the moment we are born, we have in our heads the knowledge of good and evil. Even the little guys, you'll see it in them. Put them in a, in a room with a couple of other little guys. And if there's five of them, just give them four sweets. And see what happens, what comes out of them. That knowledge of good and evil has led to separation from God 
and eventually, of course, to death. But I want to talk, because we're coming up to Easter, I want to talk about something that is really behind the cross, and that is this thing called sin. I want to talk about sin, I want to talk about the cross, and I want to talk about salvation. And the first thing I want to look at is this thing called sin, because people today don't really understand what sin is. It's become so watered down, and, and people justify it so easily that, um, in fact, I think most people don't even think about it at all. And it wouldn't be so bad if it was only to do with sin. But what I want you to grab hold of today is that if you water sin down, what you're effectively doing is also watering down your understanding of the majesty of God. These, these are two concepts, the seriousness of sin and the majesty and the holiness and the glory of God. And we have to hold those two things together. We have to hold them in balance. Because if you, if, you, if you think sin is nothing, then you're also taking down the majesty of God. Because the majesty, if you think the majesty of God is great, then you will see sin as really serious. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's very important that we grab hold of that. We need a balanced understanding of the gravity of sin and the majesty of God. John Stott says that if we diminish either one, we diminish the message of the cross. The cross becomes nothing. If we don't think sin is that serious, then we don't see the cross as being necessary. And the greater view we have of God's majesty, the greater view we're going to have of the seriousness of sin. And therefore, we understand that we need the cross. Sin is really, really serious. The majesty of God is really serious. God hates sin. So we have the holiness of God and we have the wrath of God and they cannot coexist with sin because His holiness exposes sin. The moment His holiness shines out, it exposes, it shines out, and it, it, it makes sin for what it is. It shows you what it's about. And the, ho and the wrath of God, His righteous anger, opposes sin. Those things cannot live in the same space. And we tend to dismiss sin as something that's old-fashioned and relative. And over the centuries, we've transformed our view of the majesty and the wrath and the holiness of God into something that makes us just feel very comfortable. So the kind of God that appeals to most people today is he's easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He's gentle, he's kind, he's accommodating, and he has no violent reactions. And even in the church, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. But the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.17, he says, we actually need to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. That's what we have. We need, we need to re-look at this thing called sin. See, when, when we do sin, it mustn't be just seen as a little slip, a little oopsie. You know, oops, uh, shouldn't have done that. We need to see sin for what it really is. It's rebellion. It's rebellion against God. And God doesn't indulge our sin. He, it makes him indignant. And if we minimize sin, 
then we are going to just forget the cross. The other thing which I want to raise is that sin isn't only doing bad things. Sin is building your self-worth and your happiness on anything other than God. Sin is idolatry. And you idolize something when it becomes more important in your life than God. Your career can be an idol. Claude spoke about this a few weeks ago. Your spouse can be your idol. Your family, your money, your status in society. Your church can become your idol. How's that? Just think about that one for a minute. And that applies to all of us because Paul said we're all sinners. In Romans 3.22 and 23 he says there's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And throughout the centuries, instead of living for God, we've lived for ourselves. We reversed the original intended order. So as a result, instead of ruling over creation, we've allowed creation to master us. And we are subject to decay, to disease, to disaster, and ultimately to death. Death's the final proof. And brothers and sisters, do you know that death is not a natural thing? None of us here were ever intended to die. Death is a penal thing. It's a punishment thing. That's what death is. We were meant to live forever in relationship with a forever living God. That's the story. So instead we live for our own glory by working hard at our work. We toil away in the dust until we return to dust and the dust wins. Now the classic New Testament text is Romans chapter 1. And there in verse 21 to 25, which I'll just summarize, Paul says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. There's the picture of mankind ever since the fall. So in some ways, idolatry is like next level addiction. And we're all addicted in some way to something whether it's drink or drugs or food or exercise or looking good or whatever it might be. But idolatry is next level addiction. Are you being rude now, Richard? <laughs> uh, okay, thank you. There you go. You see, when you get, you get trapped, you get ensnared by these idols... It's just like drug addicts get ensnared by drugs. And in the same way, we live in denial of it like the addicts do as well. We're all worshippers. We all worship something. And whatever we worship, we're going to serve because worship and service go together. So it doesn't matter whether we're worshipping a person or a community, uh, a race, a language, a culture. Ultimately, we are basing it on Either God, who's spoken to us, or a God substitute. And these things work out in our lives individually and culturally. We've made a mess of it. But in Genesis chapter 3, God comes along after they've done this. And he's got some questions for Adam and Eve. In verse 9, he goes up to Adam and he says, where are you? 
And then in verse 11, he says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Third question. Fourth question, he says to Eve, What is this you've done? Verse 13. These questions aren't because God's at a loss because he doesn't know what's been happening. Uh, he doesn't know where they're actually hiding and he doesn't know why they're hiding. God is omniscient and omnipresent. He knows the end from the beginning. He knew they were going to do that before they did it. He knows exactly what's happened. So he's asking those questions because it's more a case of him saying, do you guys, do you guys realize what has happened here? Do you guys realize what's going to be happening from now on? Do you have any idea of the consequences of your actions. That's what's prompting those questions. He's digging down deep, sort of very basic. And the thing, you see, the thing is, we can make choices which exclude God because we've been given this free will, but these choices had consequences. They've got consequences for us, and they had consequences for Adam and Eve. The first thing we see in the garden there is that Adam and Eve were instantly conscious of having lost something precious. They, they, it was probably the glory they had at God at the beginning, and they, uh, possibly they didn't really appreciate it. You know, they, they wandered around, they were naked. They were not aware that they were naked because of the glory all around them. But the moment they sinned, that fell away. And they didn't understand it. They didn't know what had happened. They were, they were at a loss. And, and I want to say to you that that sense of loss that, that they experienced, we still experience today until we come to Christ. It's a form today of discontentment. You know, you've read Solomon's uh, words in, in um, Ecclesiastes, and he says, meaningless everything is meaningless under the sun and yet solomon is a guy who tried everything if there was if he was living in the modern times he would have been through every single bottle of scotch on the shelf to test them all every wine in the area he had i don't know how many hundreds of concubines and wives solomon tried everything and at the end of it all his words were it's meaningless there's a sense of discontentment. So what was in Solomon was the sense of having lost something that he'd had in the beginning. Not he personally, but his ancestors. It's like, a, it's like an inner memory of each one of us. So we all share the same grandfather and grandmother, Adam and Eve. That inner memory that was in them is in us. And so until we come to Christ, we've got the sense of discontentment. But then we see Adam and Eve, the first thing they do is they go and try and sort something out on their own. They go and get fig leaves, they want to cover themselves up. And we do the same thing. We, we have this discontentment, the sense of being lost. But we go out there and we start looking for things to do to try and plug the hole, try and make us feel better. And we look everywhere but for God. And of course, Adam and Eve also had a sense of guilt and fear. Something they'd never experienced before. They used to go and walk with God in the cool of evening in the garden. 
and probably were just enjoying his special presence and his glory was all about them and they were radiating with the glory themselves and then suddenly that's gone and they feel this guilt and this fear and they can't really work this out. No one there to explain it to them. And I think their conscience that God had given them was activated by the knowledge of good and evil. They suddenly knew, even though they couldn't really articulate it, they knew they'd done something wrong. And we have the same. I'm sure every one of you, you've done something wrong, you know it the moment you've done it, I should not have done that. Yeah. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? It's your conscience speaking to you. God's given us a conscience. The scripture also tells us that that conscience can become seared. So when you do something wrong and you keep ignoring the, the prompting of the Lord about that, you keep ignoring your conscience until eventually it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. You know what they used to do when people used to get wounded with with blades and knives and they'd and be bleeding, they would take a knife and they would put it in the fire till it's hot and then they would put the blade on the wound to sear the wound, to stop the bleeding. That's what happens with your conscience. becomes seared. So God can't actually speak anymore into that situation. And so the sin just becomes worse and worse. And then finally, of course, uh, Adam and Eve... Not knowing what they do, they try and run away and hide away from God. They, they, I, I guess if you had to ask them, why are you doing this? They didn't even really know why. They just knew they had to get out away from a holy God. They had a sense that what they'd done had separated them from him. And brothers and sisters, this is the human condition of every single person while they are alienated from God by sin. Until you come to Christ, until he takes your sins, you are separated from God like they are. So apart from God, we know there's something missing in our lives because God has placed eternity in the hearts of all people. We know there is something more, but we generally don't go back to God to find it, especially in this modern world. We don't want to depend on him. We want to be our own God. So we try everything else. We try education. I must get a good education. I'll work very hard. I'll watch my diet. I'll exercise well. I'll look in other religions to see what they, what suits me. I'll go and examine philosophy. I'll sit in classes and we'll, we'll debate things. I'll get to know more. And this is hiding away from God. It's just like Adam and Eve. You're just hiding away. And so we reject Christ's salvation and we indulge in self-salvation. But you see, the Genesis account carries on and it tells us something that you might not have seen before. But it says that we have a loving, a forgiving, and a gracious God. He's not just an angry God. Because he doesn't leave Adam and Eve on their own. He goes looking for them. He doesn't lead them to themselves. He's not um, far away at a distance watching us. He goes looking for them. And again, you know, it's not the kind of looking that means he's lost them. Um, he, he, he didn't say, now I wonder where Adam and Eve have got, you know. Um, 
Sure, I can't see them here in the garden. Must be missing somehow. He, he, he doesn't, God knows exactly where they are. They might be crouching under this fig tree with the fig leaves all around them. He, no, he can see them. He knew where they were going to go there before they went there. But it's a bit like this. For those of you who've got children or have had children, you'll remember that um, when your children are growing up, they do something naughty. Is that right? You, or unless your children are little angels. but no. So they do something naughty. And when they do this, you know where they are. They're in your house. They're there. You know where they are. They're in the room maybe. You haven't lost them, but, but you've got to deal with them. And so you go looking for them because it's time for discipline. Isn't that right? It's time for discipline. In our house, we had a, a discipline room and a waiting room. The waiting room was the bedroom because that's the place of peace. Amen. <laughs> the bathroom was the place of cleansing. So fortunately, I never had to do that very often. But I have a, 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 a leather slipper. And it was just just waiting for that door to open that was more than punishment enough. So God knows their sin. He knows their rebellion. He loves them. He tells them, you, there are going to be consequences to what you've done. But even then, he's got a plan. And he sets out a process for dealing with sin for all of our lives. It applies to us as well. And this plan was birthed in the garden. And the first thing we notice is that he addresses each one of us personally. In verse 9 says, The Lord God called to the man. He spoke to Adam. He doesn't speak to people in groups. He doesn't speak to people in general. He doesn't speak to your culture, your language comes to you personally and then he spoke to Eve verse 13 says the Lord God said to the woman he speaks to you he speaks to me and he makes you aware that he's actively seeking you out he troubles you he stirs you in your spirit you know I've done something wrong what's going on with me why am I so troubled like this but his question to Adam applies he says where are you where are you Emil where are you morally? Where are you intellectually? Where are you spiritually? Are you there? Are you in a mess? And these are troublesome questions for people. And then God shows us the true nature of what we've been doing. That question, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit? So he makes us aware of us and he pricks that conscience. And we're quickened by the Holy Spirit to know that we're in sin. We know we need to do something about it. And then, of course, God tells us about judgment. He makes us aware of the consequences and we become conscious of our need to be right with him. But here's the thing. Just as Adam and Eve, just as with them... He doesn't give them a list of things to do. He doesn't say, okay, guys, now you've stepped out of line. Here's a checklist. Ten points I want you to go away and do. Um, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church used to have 
you'd have to do penance. Uh, pardon? All right, they still do it. So you would have to pay penance and you would have to say um, X number of uh, Hail Marys and things like that to, to mitigate your sin. He doesn't do that because there is nothing that they can do. Do you notice that in the Garden of Eden? They, they cover themselves and all of that, but there's nothing they can do to make things right. God doesn't give them a hint of that. Not at all. It's not what has to be done, but who will be doing it. And God gives them a hint in verse 15. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, if I was Adam and Eve, I would have wondered about that right there and then because offspring, at that stage, they knew nothing about any of that. So straight away, that gives you a hint. And what God is saying to them is the way back through the woman's offspring. Paul confirms that in Galatians 4 and verse 4 and 5. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman. The woman's offspring. Paul is speaking about Jesus. So that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the gospel of grace that we see in the creation story. Okay, It starts right back, back then in chapter 3 verse 15. God effectively makes a covenant with his people, a covenant of grace. But the question then for me is, but why the cross? Why, why, it have to, why do we have to go through all of this stuff? Well, you see, because salvation from sin requires sacrifice. The justice of God demands a sacrifice for sin. It must happen. The penalty must be paid. And we can't pay it because God's righteousness requires a sacrifice that's without spot or blemish. Sin and the majesty of God just can't inhabit the same space. Remember what I said about that? We've got to hold these things together. And the only way it can be paid is if Jesus, the sinless man, takes it on himself. John says in John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus is the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Paul said Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. But let's just go back quickly and have a look at an old, another Old Testament perspective. Zechariah chapter 3. Just turn there for me. In your scripture, in the scripture, please. Let me find it here in my Bible. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Page 806. If you have the same Bible as mine. Zechariah chapter, chapter 3. Now, in this first line of Zechariah 3, we have the prophet Zechariah, and he is, he's caught up in a vision by God. And he's taken in this vision into the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And verse uh, 1 says, um, Then he showed me, he being God, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. So there's this picture 
Zechariah is the prophet, and at that stage, Joshua was the high priest. Now, only the high priest of Israel was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, and he was only allowed to go in on one day of the year, and that was the Day of Atonement. So nobody went into the Holy of Holies for 364 days of the year, only one day. And on that particular day, they, they had to prepare a huge amount of things. All sorts of things had to happen. So a week beforehand, the high priest was taken away and he was put in a place where he was completely alone, separated from people. That's a week before the Day of Atonement, all right? And then he would wash his body from top to toe and he'd prepare his heart. And the night before the Day of Atonement, he wouldn't sleep at all. He would, he would spend time praying and reading God's word. And then on the day, he would get up in the, and he would wash himself again. And he would be dressed in pure, white, unstained clothing. Then he would go into the Holy of Holies. And he would offer an animal sacrifice to atone for his own personal sins. And once he'd done that, he would turn around. He'd come out of the Holy of Holies and then he would have to go through this whole rigmarole again. He'd be bathed completely again from top to toe, and he would put on a new kit. Brand new, white, unstained, unblemished linen. This time he would go into the Holy, and Holy, Holy of Holies, and he would sacrifice for the sins of the priests. Then he would come out again, and he'd be bathed again, and he would have new white linen put on him. And the, second the third time, he would go back in and sacrifice to atone for the sins of all the other people. Huge rigmarole. Lots of ritual involved here. Now, the funny thing about this was, it was done in public. So there was a thin screen between the priest and the people. So, you know, like these net curtains you get. You can... You can kind of see shapes through it, but you can't make it out exactly. And so on the other side of the screen, the priest would be sitting, would be there, and the people on this side would be watching as he bathed himself and then dressed himself, and they would see him go into the Holy of Holies, and they would see him come out, and they would see him go through this ritual again and again. And the people would stay there. And they would go up there because it was important that they see that the priest does it properly because he was representing them. And if he didn't do it properly, they were in trouble. So that's why they went through all of that. And then we come to verse 3. And this makes, for Zechariah, this, this is so shocking because it says there that in verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. Now the word filthy there actually means excrement, uh, the, the, the original Hebrew word. It means totally defiled. And so Joshua, this prophet, looking at that, would have been horrified to see the high priest. If you understand the background to it, you realize this would have been too much for him to bear. But you see, what was happening was, God was enabling Zechariah the prophet to see sinful man the way God sees sinful man. In spite of all our efforts to be pure, to be good, to be 
moral, to cleanse ourselves. God sees our hearts and our hearts are full of filth. All our good works, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And no matter what we do, we're not fit for the presence of God. So Zechariah must have been really horrified. And in verse 4, he hears these words. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festival, festal robes or with pure vestments. And then further down in verse 8, Zechariah hears these words. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, there are men who are a symbol, for behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. The branch. And in verse 9, the end of it, he says, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. I will remove the iniquity of this land in one day. This is the same branch that Isaiah speaks about and Jeremiah speaks about. It's a prophetic picture of Jesus. He's the branch. So Zechariah must have thought to himself, so for all these years, hundreds of years, we've been going through this process. Once a year, on that day, we go through all these rituals, and when it is finished, we are just as filthy as we were before. We start the next year all over again. But God was saying to him, Zechariah, this is a prophecy about a day when the sacrifices will be over and the cleanliness laws will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled in one man in one day. And then 500 years later, another Joshua turns up. His name is Jesus. And there's some similarities here between the two. First of all, one week before the cross. Remember the priest? One week before the Day of Atonement, he had to start preparing himself. One week before the cross, Jesus began to prepare himself. The night before Jesus was arrested, he didn't go to sleep. He stayed up the whole night praying. Remember the priest? Spent the whole night praying the day before the Day of Atonement. But then what happened to Jesus after that was exactly the reverse of what happened to the priest. People never cheered Jesus on. They mocked him. They jeered him. They abandoned him. And they denied him. He wasn't encouraged by the people. He was forsaken by God. You know the picture when... You, you, you see in your mind when you read the words, when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a picture, brothers and sisters, of the unrepentant sinner dying without Jesus. That's what the unrepentant sinner will feel when he comes to die. He will have certain knowledge that he has been forsaken, that God is, go is not going to be in his life at all. The horror of those words of Jesus, we can imagine in the lives of people who do not know him. And you know what? Jesus wasn't clothed in pure, white, unstained linen. He was stripped and he was killed naked. 
And he also wasn't washed in nice clean water either. He was, he was, his washing was with human spit. People spat on him. But Paul tells us that this happened for our sake. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. So God clothed Jesus in our sin. He, Jesus took our penalty, our punishment upon himself. The discipline that was meant for us was on him. Through Jesus at great cost to himself, God has clothed us in spotlessly clean garments. He's clothed us in the righteousness of God. In Revelation 19 verse 7 and 8, John speaks of this. He calls it fine Lynn, bright and clean, is given to us to wear. That's at the end of the story. That's what's waiting for us. But there's something more, just to, for me to finish. God planted lots of trees in the Garden of Eden. But there were two that he named. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I've spoken about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That fruit from that tree led to sin and slavery and ultimately death. But at the end of Genesis 3, God says this in verse 22 and 24, which I'll just summarize. The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever, he put man out and he placed a cherubim there with a flaming sword turning every way to guard the way to the tree, the tree of life. And I want to say to you, this wasn't God being revengeful or spiteful or mean. This was the act of a loving and a forgiving God. Because he knew that if sinful man ate of the tree of life, he would live forever, but he would live forever in a state separate from God. He would never ever come to God and God wants all people to be saved the Bible tells us that's his heart and that's why he would not allow man he gave him the chance Adam had a chance we have the chance in Adam as we come to Christ God in Christ took the punishment for all our sins on himself and only he could do it and so the cross transforms everything. It gives us a new worshipping relationship to God. It gives us a new and a balanced understanding of ourselves. And it gives us a new incentive to give ourselves to others. It gives us a new love for enemies. And it gives us a new courage to face the difficulties of suffering. The cross is the place where God brings his salvation and revelation to sinful humans. And the way we think and the way we act must be shaped by the cross. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the way in which we can see the gospel of your kingdom, the gospel account, as far back as the book of Genesis. And rolling right throughout the whole Bible. We see your plan and your purpose for man, for sinful man. That it was never your heart.
that we would all be forsaken, but that we would come to a place of repentance and to a place, Lord, where, where Jesus becomes our Savior and our Lord. And I pray, Lord, that in the next week or so that as we as we commemorate this Easter time and the resurrection, that you, Lord, would work in each one of our hearts. Bring us to a place where we begin once again to grasp the these, these, these concepts of sin and the majesty of God, that we begin to see, Lord, that, that sin is not something so light and, and of, of, of little account, but that as we see your majesty and as we see more and more of your glory, we would realize that we are sinful people. Like Peter in that boat after all the fish had been caught, we can actually look up and say, stay away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Just becoming more and more aware of his greatness. And I pray that, Lord, all in Jesus' name this morning.